0: Hey, this is Eric with Corvus Lore, and you're listening to Thunder Underground.
1: Hey, this is Screaming Jack Novak from Fastest Land Animal, and you're listening to Thunder Underground.
2: Welcome to episode 371 of the Thunder Underground podcast. Trent here as always, and this week we've got a jam packed episode because, as you heard right there in that intro, we've got two guests on this episode Eric Frazier, the lead guitarist for the band Corvus Lore, and John Cusamano the lead vocalist for the band Fastest Land Animal. We're going to talk to both of them about the new music both of their bands have and a lot of other stuff, as usual. But first, I need to let you know who we're sponsored by. And that would be Medfarm, a dispensary located in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, 24683 East Highway 51. They're right off the highway. They have a drive through which a lot of dispensaries don't have that option. So if you call text or email ahead your order you can pull right through that drive through and quickly be on your way but you can also check out their entire selection at leafly.com check out their large selection they've got tons of staff on hand that are extremely nodule follow them on all their socials medfarmok on instagram medfarm on facebook that's p-h-a-r-m and the website is medfarmok.com they're always running great specials on there and one special that's always running is if you mention Thunder Underground, they'll give you 10% off your first order, which is very cool. So don't forget to do that. And above all else, they're cannabis with a cause. 30% of their proceeds go to build no-kill animal shelters. So that's uh, an amazing cause and an amazing thing they're doing. You know, most businesses don't donate a third of their profits at all time to anything, let alone something like this. So check out midfarm wherever you're at, and hit them up and tell them you heard about them on Thunder Underground. You've also got Sunset Tattoo, a tattoo shop in Midtown Tulsa. Their tattoos are done good and proper. They're state licensed and they are mother approved. 25 plus years of experience from Jason Thompson and his crew over there. Great work. You can check out. You can check out photos on the socials. Facebook and Instagram are both Sunset Tattoo Tulsa. Tons of photos on there from throughout the years. Tons of different styles that they excel in. I've had work done by Jason Thompson. I know many other people that have as well. So shoot a message or give a call over there to Sunset Tattoo to talk about a time that you can set down what work you need to have done, all that great stuff. They accept walk ins as well. So get over there to Sunset Tattoo and tell them you heard about him on Thunder Underground. Finally, we've got DEB Concerts, a concert promoter based right here in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. They brought tons of great acts to the Tulsa area. Last In Line, Buck Cherry, Great White, Bisto Blanco. They brought stuff to the arena level, like Megadeth and Lame of God, Brett Michaels of Poison. No, actually that was Poison. I'm used to just saying Bret Michaels because it's usually just him, but Poison, all original members, came to Tulsa and played the BOK Center. They also did Snoop Dogg and Nelly and Ice Cube and all that great stuff there as well. And DB Concerts books the Roadhouse stage at Rocklahoma every year. This year is no different, and the Rocklahoma lineup was announced just this past week, and the DEB concert stage at the Roadhouse will feature headline sets from Buckcherry, Skid Row, Warrant, and Kix, K-I-X. Man, one of the best live bands you will ever see. The stage will also feature L.A. Guns. Steven Adler is going to be playing one of the stages as well keeping it in the theme of the bands I just mentioned. But yeah, the D B Concerts, Roadhouse Stage, always a killer time. Doug Burgess has been on this podcast several times, talking about it the last several years. I'm sure we'll do the same again this year as well. So hit up debconcerts.com to be kept up to date for info on upcoming shows in Rocklahoma as well. Follow them on the socials. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are all DEB Concerts. And of course, we'll keep you up to date here as well. Recently, I did this, my last episode was nine or ten days ago. I didn't have one last week, but it came out, for, you know, less than less than two weeks ago was the last one. Which was the Megadeth live stream from Japan with Marty Friedman review that Jason and I did. But since that point, the world lost Gary Rossington, one of the founding members of Leonard Skinner. And he was actually the last original member still alive. I mean, Artemis Pyle, who was a classic era member, is still alive, but he was not the original drummer. And of course, Ricky Medlock is in the band now, and he was in the band back in the 70s, but again, not an original member. So Gary Rossington was the final, last lone survivor of the original Leonard Skinner group. One of the greatest American rock and roll bands ever. And I am attempting to put together a tribute episode with someone, so that's why I'm going to keep this short and not really go into my thoughts on anything. I mean, we all know the contributions that Leonard Skinner has made to this world, and Gary Rossington, of course, was a major part of that. I mean, everybody in the world, whether they really know much about Leonard Skinner, knows Freebird, because that's been, you know, a joke, ongoing joke for 30, 40 years, you know, when someone yells, play Freebird at a show, what we know and love from Freebird, that slide guitar at the beginning, that amazing solo that runs on there at the end for a few minutes, all Gary Rossington. So, and there's so much more to that simple man, call me the breeze working for MCA ballad of Curtis Lowe. I mean, the, again, like I said, I'm not going to go too deep into this but it's a major loss in the rock world. He had actually been out of Leonard Skinner here for the past, I think, year and a half, maybe close to two years. You know, dealing with his health issues, and a good friend here, the podcast Damon Johnson, has been filling his role since then. Which, of course, as I assume as Leonard Skinner moves forward on the dates they have scheduled this year, Damon Johnson will be in tow for those as well. If something doesn't happen here in the next week and two week or two, excuse me. I'll probably talk a little more a little more about this subject but just letting you know hopefully that's coming up and on that note coming up on this podcast recently recorded an episode with two of the members the vocalist and the drummer of the band Crashing Wayward great new band got that episode coming very soon. I also recently recorded an episode with Terry Aluu the vocalist of the band XYZ. And of course, he was the vocalist of Great White for about 8 or 10 years. Here from the late 2000, like 08, I think, 09 to like 2019. I got the chance to see him live a few times. It was great. We talk about Great White, we talk about XYZ, new stuff coming from them, and a lot of solo work that Terry has been doing as well. And I also recently recorded an episode of the Greg Upchurch the drummer for Three Doors Down. He was also the original drummer for Puddle and Mud. And before that, he was Chris Cornell's drummer. So we talk about all of that great stuff as well with him. And that will be coming very soon as well. Lots of great stuff. Got a couple others scheduled to be recorded, so I'll announce those when it happen. But there's a few to be on the lookout for. So since this is a jam-packed episode, let's just kind of jump into the subject at hand, which would be these two interviews with these two great musicians that I had the chance to talk to recently. First up, we're going to talk to Eric Fraser, the lead guitarist for the band Corvus Lore. Corvus Lore had an album come out three or four years ago. Now, I believe it was 2019. It's weird, doesn't 2019 for like a year or two ago, because we all kind of lost that ability to tell time during 2020 and early 2021 so now it feels like there's a gap i guess but here we are in march of 2023 so that was four years ago now but corvus lore has a couple newer singles out that have come out in the past few months and more music to come so let's jump into this and hear what eric has to say
0: ever been out to the Bay Area? I'm just about 20 miles, 30 miles south of San Jose. It's not too far.
2: Yeah, I've been to California a ton of times in my life, but I actually went to San Fran last year for the first time. Like That's mm-hmm. the first time I've been to Northern California. Went a couple you... times for work, but...
0: I was going to so say, did you fun. see any shows while you were there?
2: No. I mean, well, I saw, I mean, I went and worked a music festival, so I saw Green Day and a couple bands that were playing at the festival but
0: yeah um green day there's a um there's a club out in walnut creek which is close to san francisco it's called the retro junkie and it's a really small place um typically known for doing tribute bands but last weekend billy joe just showed up with with a few of his guys and they did nothing but covers the entire night wow (laughs) (laughs) that's got to be a trip yeah, you beam for a surprise if you just happen to be in the neighborhood.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, just kind of jumping into the Corvus Lord talk, you guys released this Romantic Traffic single a few months ago. We got the video and everything as well. Are you happy with the response you've gotten from fans so far?
0: Yeah. Uh, romantic Traffic, um, in terms of the video, was, um, I think, the next step for us. The first one, Boxing Ballerina, did pretty well. Um, Directed by Mike Sloat and um, but with romantic traffic, we've been getting a lot more uh, pickup on college radio and a lot of help from Valley of Fire Records and uh, and Jody Best. She's she's been uh, absolutely essential in terms of like getting us in front of people that uh, record reviewers and people that, you know, do podcasts that just otherwise wouldn't have uh, heard of us. So, yeah, we, we think it's been doing pretty well
2: are these uh, are those two songs like leading towards another album or ep or are you just kind of doing singles right now or
0: we do have a, a the full album is in the can right now so it's nine songs the album's called Lucida and um plan right now is just to keep doing singles we have a third one um on the books that is in in the process of of just kind of storyboarding some ideas and uh but we've all aligned on what, what the next song is going to be. And um, I think it's going to be similar to the, the first two songs that came out, um, maybe show a little bit of a different side of the band. There's some acoustic guitar on it. And, uh, but the song is great. And the pr- the production is, is really um, super. It's, it's our, our friend, uh, Tim Narducci, who did um, the production of the entire album.
2: Okay. So do you guys have like a timetable on when you're open to release the full thing
0: yeah that's that's um I think after this third single we're gonna then just finally put out the entire record so I for us that's probably looking more like the March April time frame um we just want to get the third single out there and then and then just start doing more and more dates to get more traction around the album itself
2: I'd, I'd read that the, the debut album was recorded live in the studio. Was <laughs> Yeah. I mean, was this one done in the same process, or was this done it, differently?
0: Well, there are two different um, processes. So the first album um, we did in Oakland, and that was a direct-to-tape album. So the band originally wanted to just go through the process of doing something kind of completely analog, And so the Place Tiny Telephone in Oakland um, actually had a Neve console from the record plant uh, from Sausalito and uh, recorded everything to two-inch tape and did the whole project in about seven or eight days. So that was all the tracking, overdubs, vocals, mix down, um, and then mastering. And yeah, it was was a good process for us to go through um, as a band, and then I, I think... That really made the direction clear for the second one, um, in terms of just going to, you know, a, a producer that would do everything in the box. And um it, quite honestly, I don't really know that there's much you can hear unless you've got you're an audiophile or you've got expert ears to know the difference between tape versus uh versus digital. Right. Um, but the digital process certainly gave us a, a lot more time to focus on the production of the second album and really just like you know uh how do you how you want to lay out any kind of guitar overdubs uh vocal harmonies and just getting a chance to spread it out a bit more it actually um it happened towards the tail end of covid and um so the person we were working with um definitely had a, a little bit more time on his hands because his band wasn't touring at the moment so we were fortunate enough to get like his undivided attention on our project
2: so how long did the process on this one take since you had a little bit extra time to work
0: with it uh it was probably more along the lines of i'd say like six to eight weeks and those are not you know um 12 hour days every day in the studio it's more like um just trying to fit in studio time between other bands that are coming in there and um but i would say that that this um the second project is is definitely showing some growth in terms of the songwriting for the band and and just um some some ideas that i think reflect more of the band's influences too so i'm really proud of it
2: is that do you guys write collectively as a group or is it kind of individually and brought together
0: yeah. Well, um, so the lead singer Ryan Jones and myself share guitar duties. I, I do more of the lead guitar and uh, some of the songwriting, but he is the primary songwriter. And so Ryan will usually come in with a semblance of a verse chorus and maybe some scratch melodies. And then it's up to um, you know, the rest of us to kind of flesh out the ideas. Um and we're <laughs> kind of notorious for for taking what what can start out as a simple idea and usually trying to I don't want to say to overcomplicate but um, you know we my bass player myself try to uh, think of creative ways to just try to take you know different twists and turns and while still kind of staying true to an idea um, he, we grew up on a lot of just seventies rock so for me you know it was a lot of early van halen acdc um and just a- anything that was classic rock based and um and for our bass player mike he's definitely more of like a beatles guy and and uh, listened you know to a lot of like yes and genesis and and uh so the good thing about our band is that you don't really have to conform to any one style of music so I, I just would say that we're Corvus Lores is, is more of like a hard rock band with melodies and uh, which is good for us because it means that we can, you know, be put on a bill with uh, pretty much any other style of, of music and try to, to hold a spot there with, without, um, you know, losing um, like the grip of an audience to know, like, what are these guys about? I think we can communicate that pretty well.
2: I mean, that kind of, I had a, Kind of answers a question I had, which is about, you know, the sound of you guys band kind of goes in and out of different areas. Like you said, it's got that old school rock sound. It also has alternative rock sounds at times, even bluesy at times from your guitar. Like what when you guys got together, was that a conscious effort to kind of make the band like that? Or did that just happen
0: from the four of you getting together? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I think because of the four of us kind of being along the same age group and, and listening to similar styles of music that definitely, um, is informing, I think some of the ingredients that we put into a song. I, I personally, um, don't like to, to write or record music that has too many gimmicks to it. So if, if it can really just be, um, straightforward and written on an acoustic guitar and then from there, um, you know, just kind of, do paint brushing along the the top of it um I think for us is is primarily how we've written most of these songs um and you're right there, there definitely is a, a classic rock feel to it um the, you know the the production technique on most of the guitar tracks really was just like uh taking you know 100 watt marshals and turning up super loud and keeping the gain relatively low and just trying to keep I would say things within kind of a classic acdc style of of sound um but yeah our, our, our singer ryan will definitely um pull from a number of different influences um more particularly like we i would say like we listen to a lot of zeppelin uh, the cult rival sons stone temple pilots um just many bands from I, I would say between the 70s 80s and 90s and maybe further out than that
2: Funny that you mentioned the Colton Led Zeppelin. When I first listened to the album, the song "Beautiful Alone," the intro to that, I'm like, "This sounds like the cult. And all of a sudden, I'm like, "No, this sounds like Zeppelin." And then, just like within thirty seconds, it sounded totally different. You know, when it went into the verses, I was like, "Wow!" Ah. So I really yeah. dug
0: that. But that was a that was a single off of of the the first album, and um, I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, they always say the good ones borrow from the greats or (laughs) (laughs) or something along those lines but um yeah i'm I'm glad you you listened to it and you dug it
2: yeah so like yeah one of the things that jumped out to me the most of i mean all the all your guys songs is your guitar solos like how do you craft those do you sit down and write them or do you kind of spontaneously do it after the song's written
0: yeah i um do a little bit of both so um A song like Boxing Ballerina, um, I definitely wanted to come up with a motif really for the for the solo rather than just kind of let it fly from the hip. So when we wrote the the piece of music where um, I'm taking the solo over it, what I did was um I actually just hummed it. Like I had I had the the bass chords, the basic chords happening in the background and and I just let it replay over and over again and I just started humming a a melody and then that's what ended up for the most part being what i did on guitar um but it um it's interesting that you you point out that that process too because i've had a a lot of my uh friends and other guitar players particularly point out a few solos and the ones they usually land on are the ones that i've tried to work out as kind of a, a vocal idea first and then just take it to guitar um but there's other songs where um it is just kind of playing off the cuff. Um, but I, I typically like to have ideas worked out. You know, I, I, I want to do my homework, so to speak, before going in rather than kind of wasting someone's time while, you know, while you get your shit together. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, going back to what you mentioned earlier about kind of fin- finishing this at the tail end of the pandemic, was it kind of I would assume it's kind of hard sitting here over a year now kind of holding on to this stuff and not letting people hear it. Is that
0: <laughs> yes. Is that kind of
2: <laughs> the anticipation of getting it out there? Is that there for you?
0: Yeah, it, you hit the nail on the head. It it <laughs> it has been um, you know, somewhat of a waiting game, but I would say that the the waiting that we're doing is um for the purpose of letting letting singles out there and trying to get um as much traction as possible for for any given song um the you know this thing was out of production i want to say it was like february of 2021 um and and we've been just making videos since then but I, i've also had uh friends in local bands that you know have come right out of the gate you know on social media and said hey here's our album and and you'll see you know people responding like maybe the first day maybe couple days after that and then inevitably it ends up kind of going out into the ether and and um, you know your diehards will go back and listen to it or if you're lucky they'll buy it but i think there's something to be said for trying to give your strongest songs on a project a fair chance and then after that just kind of um filling in the gaps there's certainly songs on lucida that um are are proud ones that which we know, you know, personally have a lot of, um, heart put into them lyrically and musically, but it may not be the strongest for a single. And so we, you know, you try to make your choices, not necessarily on a popularity contest, but ones that you think, um, will tell the story of who the band is the best in, in three minutes and 33 seconds.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've noticed that over the last few years, you see You'll see bands release like five singles or something before the album comes out. And that makes sense because then they're on people's radar for every couple weeks, you know, for a few months. And then the album drops. So it's a longer process than, hey, here's my album. And a week later, people forgot,
0: you know. Right. If you're able to release five singles on a song that maybe has, you know, 10 or 13, you're also letting people know if you like these five, then. You know this is a strong project rather than you know they've got one song or one or two songs yeah well kind of going back to the
2: beginning like how did you guys form this have you i mean i'd read in your bio that you guys are session musicians i don't know if all four of you were but um did you guys meet through that process or have you known each other a long time
0: yeah actually our the, our lead singer ryan um was a session vocalist in in los angeles and I want to say this was in the early '90s, certainly before I met him, um, and he, he he's had some pretty cool interactions with Bob Kulick. And um, I'm spacing on the, the name of the drummer from Steel Panther, but they they had a thing happening called August Again um, about you know 30 years or so ago. And uh, but the bass player Michael Neto and myself um, came from a couple of different tribute bands out in the Bay Area. So we did. He and I did a tribute to Foreigner with some friends for about eight years or so, and then I, I moved on and, and did a couple of different tribute projects. One was for the Foo Fighters, but we all kind of ended up in the same uh, general location, and um, and it was just a matter of meeting our our drummer Joe and just having a, a jam over at his house and and finding out that we all had similar um, taste in music and really wanting to just. Put every effort we could into writing original rock music together, rather than, um, you know, playing in in tribute bands, uh, which is great. I mean, if if you love playing in front of large crowds and and gigging all the time, then you know, tributes and cover bands aren't a bad way to go. But we 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 made the decision to just do um, only music that we write and and really just see if if there's you know if there's interest in what we're doing. Um, so yeah, we, we, I think we marked it yesterday. We've been at it for about seven and a half years now. Is that
2: something you had been as a musician been wanting to do for a long time previous? Yeah. Did that seven it, years, I mean.
0: It, it is because band, yeah. I, I, I didn't really consider myself, um, much of a, of a heavy songwriter, like somebody that would just, you know, turn on, you know, a recorder or your computer and kind of just jot down a ton of ideas. It really wasn't, until personally i got together with these guys that i started um just taking a a lot of riff ideas and then seeing if we could flesh them out into full songs but um i have to be honest it's been one of the most rewarding processes to to really you know you kind of um you have to be a little bit vulnerable because not all ideas are great and um and certainly when you're when you're writing you have to have um a semblance of this seems appropriate for this band rather than just you know writing something like if I threw a Frank Zappa piece out then that's probably not the best thing for for Corvus Lore okay. um but so far it's worked out pretty well I um I'd say uh not too many things have hit the cutting room floor in terms of like somebody brings an idea to the band and it's you know being completely just like not taken to the stage which is really what we try to do after a song is written even before it makes it on album is is try to play it in front of people a few times and work out the kinks and just see what people respond to
2: when when you were playing in tribute bands like you mentioned foreigner and foo fighters and stuff like that is it easy for you to match a guitar tone
0: (laughs) uh well that's a really good question for those two particular bands that got lucky because Mick Jones uh, definitely came from the Marshall JTM 45 style of amplifiers. So that would be the predecessor to um, the the, the 100 watt and 50 watt Marshall. So I think of like um, the band Free or Paul Kossoff or just really um, early Marshall type tones. So Foreigner definitely, you could get away with like 90% of their songs and do it. Um, And then for the Foo Fighters stuff, because there's already three guitars in that band um my i, I just decided i'm going to occupy the space of the the marshall type of tones and we had two other guitar players that i could take more of the high octane guitar tones you know where they're where they're needed in certain songs but um yeah that, i i tend to like from a guitar standpoint the a, a really direct signal path so while i could probably you know take a a modeling amp system or like a Kemper or a Line 6 and try to you know match every guitar tone perfectly. Um, I I really just try to figure out how to do it with my own setup and just change the effects through the through my pedal board and go that route.
2: As far as you're playing with Corvus Lore like whenever you and uh, Ryan first started playing together like how do you feel You guys mesh did you mesh pretty easy easy as guitarist or
0: did it take a bit for the chemistry yeah we we definitely did we're we're of of similar ages um he he was born in uh the la area and so was i I was born in orange county but moved to san jose like in 1971 but um we both have the very similar um guitar tastes and in music and, and in players and, uh, and Ryan is just a, a rock solid rhythm player. So, that he, like when we did Lucida, let's say a song has like four or five guitar parts in, in overdubs, then I usually just take the stuff that um, is the painting on the top and filling in gaps, and he's running everything straight down the middle in terms of like the basic um, chord structures of the songs. Um, and oddly enough he he likes to tune his guitars in a ton of different tunings in a good way so a lot of it is you know in in a the kind of the jimmy page style of dadgad or Dagad. but he, there's also he he does some other tunings um that really just for him it's it just it's it speaks to him in a way where he feels comfortable singing over it and it gives the song a little bit more intrigue in fact, are you a guitar player no oh well, I was just going to say that um, we don't write a whole lot of songs that, that just use bar chords. Or if you think like a two guitar chord structure, um, we're typically like trying to play off of each other in using chord inversions and, and things like that just to, um, to broaden the spectrum of the sound and, and to help out the vocal melody.
2: Well, going back, like who is there a specific guitarist when you're a kid that made you want to be a guitarist or?
0: For it's sure, just a
2: collection
0: of a bunch of hundred percent. Um, I I started playing guitar at age twelve, so that was probably around nineteen eighty three, and in that time frame, uh, Randy Rhodes for sure um, was a huge influence. Same with Eddie Van Halen and and early ACDC. But my brother was actually um, playing bass. He's a year and a half older than me, so he he picked up the bass first. And I was lucky enough to get a guitar underneath the Christmas tree like that same year. And uh, so I I had the benefit of learning songs and and, you know, trying to cop the riffs of these guys with my brother at an early age. Um, And he certainly enlightened me to more of the progressive side of rock. Um, I know a year and a half doesn't sound that much older, but. He definitely um, was listening to a lot of Rush and Genesis and Yes and uh, John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu, um, boy Steely Dan. It just goes on and on. So uh, for me, that was just like a healthy balance to really um, get get a, a flavor for. Not not everything is shredding guitar and and um, and it it all it just gets down to writing great music. And so yeah, it's, that's when I picked it up.
2: Well, after you guys were both playing did you guys ever have a band together or anything
0: we did <laughs> yeah we did um so he, he and i were were in a latin rock band in the year 2000 so gosh that's 23 years ago that band was signed to sony emi and so we we recorded our first album out in madrid spain and um and, and did did tv and radio and, and a, a number of concerts and mm-hmm. Um, and that project lasted, you know, maybe one or two CDs and then, um, we had to kind of terminate that project and move on to other things, but it was really, um, it really was just like trial by fire, you know, to be in the machine at a record label, just seeing, you know, working with other artists that are on the label. We certainly did our, our fair share of showcasing to labels before, um, we got signed, but for me personally, having, you know, been in a band with my brother was one of the highlights of my musical career. Well, I mean, speaking of that, like, I know
2: labels are way different now, but like <laughs> how is Valley of Fire like working with you guys? Like, how's that process been?
0: Yeah, it, night and day. So, um, you know, when I when we were in the uh, the Latin rock band with EMI, you know, you've got an A&R rep that um finds the talent and then you know gets you you know inside of a contract and you get signed and you might get some kind of an advance. And then when you go to record your record, you know, the studio time is on your dime. You have to recoup the cost back to label. Same thing with videos and on and on and on. But with Valley of Fire, uh, number one, they're a, they're local to the Bay Area. And so um they their mission is to just seek out bands that they like and and songwriters that they feel um I guess resonate with them and so we were one of the first bands to get to get signed with them and it just so happened that um it the Valley of Fire is head up by the, our producer Tim Narducci and, and his co-partner JJ Garcia and um but anyways you want to talk about just having um you know a dedicated level of support and in, in direct contact and you know, not only are they looking out for the best interest of the band, but you know they're they're also trying to like book gigs and get you in front of of uh, promoters and you know get the band outside of the Bay Area. Um, so it, it's been really great, and um, I can't say enough good things about Valley Fire. So <laughs> any any social post I ever do, I'm always hashtagging them. I, I try to promote Valley Fire as as much as possible because they deserve it.
2: Well. Speaking of shows or getting shows, I've read that. I mean, my favorite band growing up is Guns N' Roses. Yeah. I've not read you guys have this show with Hookers and Blow coming up at the end of the month.
0: We like do. Yeah. That's in about three weeks' time. We're, we're going to be one of the opening bands at the uh, the Whiskey Go Go, which for me, it, I'm going to be able to check that off my bucket list. Um, I, I've played the Roxy and the Viper Room and, if, and a couple other places, but never played the, the Whiskey. And um, I'm super excited because, um, you know, Dizzy is is going to be, I'm sure, playing a number of different, you know, t- tunes from other bands that he likes. I'm sure there's going to be like a hefty dose of Guns N' Roses, um, which I have not seen live yet. So uh, did you have you seen them in their latest incarnation or?
2: Yeah, I've seen them five times since they got back together. Wow. <laughs> and I saw them about that many times beforehand as well. So
0: that's great yeah they they certainly have stood the test of time
2: (laughs) yeah yeah it's yeah pretty amazing that just bringing two guys back to your band can take you from an arena to a football stadium you know
0: (laughs) yeah the other thing I I love about Guns N' Roses too is that the, the some of the guys in the band they're just um you'll see them pop up in places never expected like i've seen duff show up you know at other cover gigs or just smaller venues to just help out a friend here and there and and um and i think i i think i saw on on wikipedia that there's been 23 different members in guns and roses if yeah. you give if you start their history like with tracy guns and that's just incredible that uh that they, they've gone through that many iterations but they still have this longevity which is super, man. yeah absolutely well, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you
2: know, bands that have been around a long time. Like these days, are you still listening to the same stuff you grew up on? Or like, like what kind of stuff do you listen to just on a daily basis?
0: I listen to a lot of of um, progressive rock in terms of like stuff from the 70s still. Um, but you know what? I would say that Apple uh, Music Algorithm has done a pretty decent job of, of turning me on to bands that I never would have heard of before. Like the two bands that I listened to a lot that were like a reference um, from Apple music. One is a band out of Minnesota called night moves. Just think of the the Bob Seger song. They sound nothing like Bob singer, yes. Seger, but um, they're really great. They write really catchy songs. The singer to me sounds like a male version of Stevie Nicks is like the best way I can put it. And, um, and they're, they're on tour right now. Um, another band is, um, called pure bathing culture and they're out of Portland, Oregon. And, uh, so, um, if you're into like people that just, you know, write stuff that is, um, just more on the mellow side, I would say uh, them for sure. And then, you know, then there's like fleet foxes and, um, band of horses and just, um, stuff that, uh, you can chill out to. Right. Right on Manuel.
2: I'm loving what I've heard from you guys. Looking forward to hearing the rest of this album. And I appreciate you taking the time with me today.
0: Cool, Trent. Yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you for your time and uh, mm-hmm. hello to your listeners and hope to get to talk to you soon.
2: There you go. Eric Fraser of Corvus Lore. A huge thank you to Jody Best of Best Bet Promotions for her continued support of this podcast. And a massive thank you to Eric for taking some time out there to talk to me. Glad to finally get this one out. I recorded that one with Eric almost a month ago now, I think. It was early to mid-February. So glad to finally get this one out, Corvus Lore. Great new rock band out there that you should definitely check out. CorvusLore.com is the website. I'm sure you can find all the socials on there, so follow them everywhere so you don't miss updates on when the new album, Lucida, will be coming out that Eric spoke about there. Lots of great stuff there. You know, We talked about everything from them opening for hookers and blow with Guns N' Roses with Dizzy Reed from Guns N' Roses and that also features Alex Grossi and then we talked about he talked about the man Night Moves which after you know admittedly after he after we finished this interview he he mentioned that and I'm like that sounds familiar you know and I pulled it up I found him on Spotify. And I'm like, yes, I've, heard, I've listened to this band before. It was one of those bands that came through, like, you know, your recommended stuff. Or I think I was listening to, like, artist radio for someone else, and it popped up. So, very cool suggestion there from, from Eric. So, check out that band, Night Moves. Yeah, and it's not really hard rock by any stretch of the imagination, but it's good stuff. Like I said, CorvusLore.com. And once again, a huge thank you to Eric. All right, let's jump into this next one. John Cusimano is the lead vocalist of the band Fastest Land Animal. He was also the lead vocalist for the band The Cringe. The Cringe had five or six albums. I saw him once opening for Tesla several years ago, which is something we talk about here coming up. Well, not when I saw him, but we talk about the fact that The Cringe opened for Tesla on a couple of different tours, and now Fastest Land Animal is as well, so. A cool link there, as I've mentioned many times throughout the years, Tesla is one of my favorite all-time bands, and Frank hannon has been on this podcast now four times, Brian Wheat has been on here once. So got, got the chance here to talk to John a little bit about Tesla, but more importantly, we talked about Fastest Land Animal and what's going on with them. Screaming Jack Novak is actually the vocalist for Fastest Land Animal, which John kind of speaks about a bit. When the first album came out here a couple years ago, they did it under the guise of, what's the right word, just kind of secrecy, I guess. You know, they didn't reveal their identities. They even released a video, a cool video for one of their tracks, you know, where they've got, like, kind of has a retro feel and everything. They've got TVs. On their heads, you know, with like mouse moving and stuff, but definitely this band has tons of videos out there from the last album and even this new album. The new album, East Coast, West Coast, in between came out a little under two months ago. It's a great album if you love just, I mean, something we speak about is this band's sound is kind of hard to pin down. You know, you could throw them in that pop, pop punk category, you could throw them in like a pop rock category at times. You know, the word new wave gets thrown around a lot. You know, there's a lot of synths in here you can you can hear, and it's something that also that, that John plays the, all the keyboards and synths on this album as well. John is also the husband of Rachel Ray, and he you can check him out. I don't know if there's a set schedule, but he shows up on her show at certain times. On the Rachel show, you know, usually to pair a drink with something that Rachel's making I believe but you know I've watched a lot of his videos they've released a lot of stuff on YouTube you know where it's just like a quick like four or five minute video of them at home and John's like you know displaying a a drink of his that you can try to emulate at home but he's always got great ideas I've watched a bunch of those and there's some cool stuff and I even you know ask him for one here in this episode so look for that here towards the end but Let's just go ahead and jump into this. Here's John Cusimano, aka Screaming Jack Novak of the band Fastest Land Animal.
1: Absolutely, man. You know I'm happy with any response. <laughs> so that uh, people seem to be digging it, and um, our singles are doing well, and we're about to embark on a tour with our friends in the band, in the band Tesla. Um, you know, I'm I'm stoked, very excited.
2: Yeah, I've noticed, you know, the videos, you know, that you released last year and even a couple more, you know, I've gotten a, a great response. So anywhere between like 500,000 to a million, like view-wise, do you attribute that to, you know, the first album or the cringe or anything? Or like, what do you attribute that success to?
1: Well, I don't know if it has to do with the cringe necessarily. I mean, when we first started this band, it, the idea was let's do something that no one knows who we are, and we're doing it under cover of darkness and with like made-up names and alternate right. personas, um, and that all that all came about because we were trapped in our houses right at the height of COVID and pandemic and lockdowns. Um, but uh, and the two other guys in the band with me, they they are uh, members or part members of previous uh, project, Cringe, um, but we all had the benefit of having uh, home studios, which I'm sitting in right now, and I don't know if people are listening or watching this, um, uh, of having studios in our home. So what we could do during the pandemic when there was no touring, we couldn't go out on the road, we couldn't get together, um, but what we, what we could do was record our parts separately in our studios and glue it all together at the end. So that was the idea behind the first record uh just the self-titled fastest land animal and the process was actually uh really easy and kind of intuitive and fun for us um so much so that uh we decided for the second album east coast west coast in between that we would do it again even though we weren't forced to this time we could get together um but the name of the album, East Coast, West Coast, In Between, is a reflection of where we all live. I live on the East Coast. I'm a New Yorker. Um, Alphonse Castillo, our bass guitar player, is uh, out in Arizona. Our uh, drummer, uh, Shark Samuels, he's in Houston, Texas. So we were literally East Coast, West Coast, In Between. And rather than having everyone travel and get hotels or sleep on couches and then, uh, rent a, an actual studio studio for six or eight weeks or whatever it would take for us to have to live in the studio and record the whole album, uh, soup to nuts. We did this process again, recording from a home studios. And it, it, it worked out great. You know, we could work on all of our parts separately. It was very efficient, um, get together, decide what worked, what didn't, Uh, listen to every what everyone else is doing, um, make the big decisions and then, you know, go downstairs and eat dinner with our families. (laughs) So um, it it worked out well. And then, you know, we got the opportunity um, before this album came out, we actually were were allowed to go on tour again. The the world started opening up and we went back out on the road uh, as Fastest Land Animal with our buddies in Tesla. And started playing a lot of the tracks from this album um and we're we're doing that again next month,
2: yeah, that was one of my questions if is if this new album was recorded more traditionally in a studio, but when you guys did it the same way, was it does that feel natural now? I guess that you've done it twice, like recording remotely like that from each other? Is it an easy process?
1: yeah, it's definitely an easy process it it feels natural i mean I love there's nothing no no substitute for getting in a room with the other guys in the band and like workshopping stuff and working through stuff. Um, we obviously get together and, you know, prep for the, for the tour and rehearse and do all that. But, um, for the album, yeah, I work, um, particularly with our, you know, our, our, uh, producer on this record and, uh, our last, you know, God, I don't know, four or five records is Don Gilmore. He, um, Worked. he was the producer for the first two Linkin Park records and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's a really well-known, uh, accomplished rock producer. Um, so I, you know, at this point I works, I'm so comfortable working with him, you know, for me, it's really about the vo- recording vocals, cause that's my job in this band and recording vocals is, is such a sensitive thing. And you're, you know, you're singing and you're singing to a crowd of the one other person in the room, who's the producer. Um, so Don has a, a, way about him that makes me feel really comfortable. Um, and traditionally we would go into, uh, uh, a studio, just be me and him. I'd be in the live room. He'd be in the control room and we would just go back and forth and, and I'd sing my parts and he would know when he has what he needs to record the album, to pull together different takes and make a really good take. We did it the same way. It was just, uh, Don and me, but we did it with in my studio here with him actually from, you know, remotely from 2000 miles away or wherever he was in California controlling my computer. So he could, you know, press record and then I would record and then he'd press stop and then he'd say, that sounds good. Let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. And uh, we worked really quickly. I did all the vocals, backing vocals, lead vocals, everything on, on East coast, West coast in between, in like uh, six days, maybe we were doing like two or three songs a day. And it was, I could have done more than that a day, but I, you know, I have to just be aware of my voice. And um, if you sing six hours a day, your voice starts getting a little cranky and you got to give it a rest and have some tea and then, you know, do your vocal exercises the next morning. But other than my, my voice just hanging in there, we, you know, I probably could have done the whole album in like two days, uh, <laughs> But uh yeah, it's great working with Don. He's he's a real uh real for me, for my process, it really works. And he's uh he's also a good friend. He's a good golfer too.
2: <laughs> Did Don do the same process with the other parts, with the other guys for the bass drums and guitar?
1: Yeah. I mean a lot of that though was those guys would go back to their studios. We would have a discussion, we would listen to this the section they were doing or the the song they were doing or the part, and we would hear what should be there, and then we would try out different things with all of us listening, and then we would say that's good, but try it this way, try it that way, let's do something else. Then, by and large, those guys would go back to their studios uh, by themselves. They're a lot; they have a lot more facility with uh, the uh, technology and the technique of recording than I do. I'm kind of a, a of a chooch when it comes to that i know just enough to be dangerous but um but uh alphonse aka johnny and shark aka andrew are really like they're actually really good engineers uh technically uh, in the studio so they kind of did their own thing on their own then they would bring it back to don and me and then we would all listen and he would say that's good let's try this let's do something different then they would go back and do it on their own so it wasn't like with them don wasn't uh, remotely controlling their recording rigs at, from California and recording with them they, he just did that with me um, is that you know I I, I want the, when I'm singing vocals I want the immediate feedback from the producer that works that doesn't try it this way try it that way um, so it's immediate I'm not I don't have to revisit this thing that I sang two days ago you know two days later and then I forget the vibe and the what was going on in my head at that point. I got to just get it all down on paper, get it all down on tape uh, in the moment. So that's how Don and I worked.
2: I'm guessing that the debut album was written, obviously remotely as well during the lockdown. Was the second album done the same way since you guys are in different places?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm the I'm the songwriter in the band. Um, okay. My songwriting process, uh, I owe a lot of it to this thing called the the song game which was started years and years ago by a good friend of mine out of Austin, Texas. He's a singer songwriter. Uh, his name is Bob Schneider. Uh, uh, he's, you know, he's a good buddy. I have tremendous respect for him as a songwriter and as a singer and the whole thing. But we do this thing. There's about 18 or 20 of us in the song game. And every week, I mean like literally every week, 52 times a year, this has been going on for uh, years and years now. Bob sends out a phrase or a word and he says, okay, everyone has to write a song that incorporates that phrase or word somehow in the lyrics of the song. You can record it on your iPhone. You can record it in a studio with a full band. You can do whatever you need to do, but once a week, you're recording a song using the phrase or the word of the week. So, and then you send it out and you know that these other singer and songwriters and musicians that you have respect for are going to hear it. And, uh, but the idea is not to comment or grade anyone else's work. You just hear it. And that's that if you want to sidebar and write someone and say, Hey Bob, I really liked your song this week. It was cool. What you did with thing. That's fine. But that's not what it's about. It's just about you exercising that songwriting muscle and knowing that other people are going to hear it. And at the end of the year, you have 52 songs, um some of them probably stink some of them are decent some of them are like kind of half thought out and you can combine pieces of other songs with other songs but at the end of the year you have maybe eight to twelve keepers and then you have an album so that's that's how i write and i i do it every week i'm really uh strict on myself about it but it's important like like anything else like exercising your vocal cords, doing warm-ups like, you know, going uh, snowboarding or skiing or, or just doing push-ups every morning, that it, the songwriting muscle is a muscle and it needs to be exercised. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes for, your, for you. And uh, then the, the quicker you're going to be able to, you know, reach and, and grab the song out of air wherever it comes from. But so that, that's where all those songs came from in some shape or form.
2: So you're saying all the songs on the album came from that weekly process?
1: Absolutely. And I, right. I remember when we first started doing the, the first Fastest Land Animal record, I made a conscious effort. I said, okay, so now when I'm writing songs for this song game with Bob, I'm going to make a conscious effort to make sure every song is fast, like 150 beats per minute fast. That'll be like the rule. And above, like 150 and above beats per minute. That's where the fastest land animal songs exist. So they're all fast. They're all kind of punky, kind of poppy. Um, <clears throat> so I did write a lot of that the music with, with that in mind during the song game. And then, you know, I came up, I just I had the songs just kept coming. And for the second album, I, I was still doing that. I was still doing uh, still am writing for the song game and thinking fast tempoed songs and kind of a punk rock sensibility. And uh, <clears throat> then, you know, you look back and you have a collection of songs or, you know, pieces of songs that you can cobble together and make an album out of.
2: So do you still have, like, throughout the years, you have all these extra songs that haven't made it? Do you have them I still archived have somewhere? Yeah. yeah. I'm, very, yeah. I'm,
1: I'm my own uh, worst critic. So, <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of songs, but I don't know that they're all – gonna make the next record but I have a few now they're gonna be on like whatever the third record we do is um, as fastest land animal and um, and I'm still you know writing you know to this day like I just did a song yesterday um, that was more of an EDM kind of sounding song that might not fit in the fastest land animal uh, repertoire but you know occasionally I I'll, I'll diverge and do something else just out of Want to do something different, kind of boring. Want to try something else.
2: Yeah. I wish I could remember, but I've had someone on the podcast before that had mentioned that exact, the song game thing, that they were a part of it, and I can't remember off the top of my head who it was. I wish
1: Hmm. I have to, like, dig
2: back through my stuff and see if it strikes a memory.
1: Jason Mraz, maybe? No. No. I don't know. It would have
2: been, you know, generally most of my guests have been either hard rock or metal, if that. Yeah, that's cool. So next to you, where did the idea to cover that come from? Was that something you guys had been playing live or just a big fan oh, of the song or?
1: Yeah, well, no and yes. So we, um, you know, we'll we'll occasionally play cover songs live and they're really fun. And it's good to find a song that you can uh, kind of put a spin on it. And especially with, you know, playing live in front of crowds, they, they love hearing songs that they know and they recognize and uh, that they can that can resonate with them. But we had never played that song live. And in fact, we had never in all the albums I've recorded, I've never recorded a cover song. I just, you know, it was all original stuff. But then, you know, we were almost we were wrapping the album. We needed like one more song just to make it long enough to be like an actual album, not an EP. And uh, we came up with the idea, let's maybe we can do a cover. And, you know, the Beatles are the best band ever in the history of the universe and their first two albums were half of the album were covers um and then you think about artists like david bowie who's like one of my favorites he would uh, very often put like a cover song on all you know on each one of his records so i said if you know if the bowie if bowie and the beatles can do that then certainly we can um so then the question was what cover song are we gonna do? So we were obviously sticking with the whole, you know, punk, maybe pushing a little bit into the new wave uh, song, uh, you know, songs. And we were thinking, you know, let's do a song. Could be, you know, Husker Du was one of the bands we were thinking about doing, covering one of their songs. Uh, Of course, you know, the Ramones, the Misfits, um, maybe a Sex Pistols or the Stooges. But I thought it was important for us to do a song that wasn't so obvious, wasn't so on the nose, you know, like I didn't want to do, for example, like, you know, Roxanne by by The Police or uh, Every Breath You Take, something that is like so obviously theirs because it's such a huge song. I thought, let's 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 come up with an album track, something that's uh, not so obvious. So not that we're going to fool people, but yeah, we're going to fool people into thinking that we wrote it and it's yeah. our song. We'll put we'll, like put a little of our sauce on it and like make it our own. And people will be like, hey, that song sounds familiar, but yeah, that's a great Fastest Land Animal song, even though it's not. So um, Alphonse Castillo, our bass and guitar player, came up with the idea of Next To You. Um, it's police. It's on the first Police record. It's the first song on the first record. It wasn't a huge hit. It's a great song. It's got a great hook. And it's got this like super punk, punch you in your face rock energy. And we were just like, Ugh. Done, sold, yeah, we're gonna do that song. So that's what we did. What we did to kind of put our own little spin on it is we added a lot more um, uh, synthesizer work. We added, um, you know, I play the, the keyboards on, on the record. We did a lot of vintage analog synth work instead of doing digital uh, keyboards. Like, I don't know if people are watching, but if behind me, I've got these, these beautiful vintage Moogs, uh, which are, like like normally in today's day and age you would play a keyboard and it would be a digital thing where the sound is created in your computer and then you have the note on your screen and you can tune it you can move it around so it fits in the tempo of the song and it's all neat and tidy and you can like fix it later and don't worry about what you're playing with these analog synths you have oscillators that create the sound with transistors you have filters and you can you just basically twist and turn all these knobs and levers and you come up with the sound that is unique and you've never heard it before. And you'll probably never hear it again. Let's take a picture of where all the knobs and levers are when you did it. And then you have to play it like live, live. So it's like recording, almost recording to tape Uh, the parts there. You can't really fix it so easily. So you gotta, you know, make sure you nail it. And that, that was the exciting part for me. was coming up using these analog synths, which have this really fat, beautiful, juicy sound that, you know, it's not going to be as good if you do that digitally, and then playing it live, the excitement of that, uh, and then creating a sound that's, you know, never been heard before, I guess, is the only way to describe <laughs> it.
2: Yeah. But well, when it comes to keyboards and synths like that, was that, did that come first for you before singing or was singing first when it comes to music or what?
1: I think it was what a little did you bit explore first? When I, when I was a little, little baby kid, like six, seven years old, I started playing, uh, I started taking piano lessons. So yeah, that was my first, uh, if I had to say that the, the musical instrument, I am definitely the best at it is keyboards. Like I can, I can blow on, on, on piano, and on keyboards, guitar. I was self taught. My dad taught me like three chords and I took it from there but I'm more of a rhythm guitarist. I can, I write, you know, write most of my music on guitar, but I can't shred on guitar. Like, but I can shred on keyboards. Um, and then singing just, you know, also came along with it. Um, and I'm very, you know, very serious about when, when I'm on tour or I'm recording, really taking care of my voice and doing my vocal exercises and trying to just, you know, have that range where I can hit, those high notes that when you're in front of a crowd and thousands of people and you go like ah, 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 that hits the back of the house and bounces back at you in the face. Like that's, that's the fun part.
2: What do you do on a, like when you're on tour say on a show day, Do you just do vocal exercises in the morning, you do anything directly before you go on stage or
1: Yeah, I use, I'll do it in the, in the morning. Um, sort of like going to the gym in the morning. I want to, you know, check that box, get up, you do voc- vocal exercises, you do your, you know, whatever you're, if you are working out or whatever your routine is. But um, yeah, it's like uh, I took lessons with um, uh, a very famous uh, vocal um, trainer um, in New York City. And I have the session on, on my phone. It's about a half hour. And I just, I press play and I sing along with it. And it's a lot of like, you know la 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 like that kind of thing like doing like scales and exercises and arpeggios um, but the way he designs it is that it it starts out um, like you're warming up your vocal cords and then you're you're pressing them and then you're getting them to really stretch as far as they can in in a good way so you can you have a, a bigger range than you did if you don't do that and to me, it's like I have to do it. If I don't do the vocal exercises, like um, even mentally, it's like uh, I'll be thinking about that if I'm on stage and I didn't get a chance to do it. So if we're staying in a hotel or uh, on the bus or wherever we are, I'm driving my bandmates crazy because they hear me going on the Felice next door. And they think <laughs> I'm an idiot. But I, I don't care. I got to do it.
2: Great. But <laughs> well, when it comes to fastest land animal, you've mentioned like Punky, Poppy, New wavy, like how – how did all that kind of come together was this like a like an effort to make that sound or was it just something that kind of happened naturally with you guys or
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always been a fan of of that of punk and and uh new wave and bands like The Police and you know, Husker Du and uh and Agnostic Front and um and of course The Ramones and you know, Television and all that you know, going back to CBGBs but um, our, the, my previous band, The Cringe, that was more of a, I would call it like a classic rock meets like grunge kind of sound. Um, sort of like The Who meets Foo Fighters meets Pearl Jam. Um, but um, I never, you know, I always had a problem with the name, The Cringe. I don't know, I, we got, we kind of got stuck with it and that was the name of the band. But I always had this name, Fastest Land Animal on the back of my head and i said to myself one of these days i'm going to start a band called fastest land animal and because it has i think it's a cool name and no one else used it um and uh it's got fast in the name so right away that lent itself to doing fast tempo you know punk rock type music which i love anyway so that was the idea behind that and then you know we did that first album uh, under cover of darkness and not letting people know who we were just put it out there and, and see what the reaction would be and the reaction was actually kind of great people um they didn't know who we were and they there was rumors that you know oh, are these the guys from uh, eagles of death metal or queens of the stone age I, who are these guys and it sounds really good which is very high praise for us um but then uh about I guess a few months into after the release of the album, we had an opportunity to go on Howard Stern's wrap up show with my friend Gary Delabate and John Hine and Rasan And uh, at that point, we had to let the cat out of the bag and say who we were. So we did. And that was that.
2: <laughs> so as far as that goes, that means there's no not going to be any ballads in the future ever.
1: <laughs> well, there's one song on the new album that's ballad dish E. It's a little slower than 150, um, but it's still like a it's still a rock song. So yeah, I don't know if we're going to be doing like, like a prom dance kind of song. <laughs> right, animal. Although oh, they've had you know they've had beautiful ballads. Yeah, you know, I want you around. That's a yeah. that's a beautiful love song.
2: I want to be your boyfriend's kind of yeah, mid tempo there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned touring with Tesla, and you've toured with them before with both fastest land animal and the cringe i mean that's one of my all-time favorite bands like what's the the experience been like you know touring with someone that's been around that long like has it have you learned stuff has it been a good
1: yeah obviously
2: you keep doing it so must be
1: (laughs) it is um i mean it's funny because before covid happened we had been touring with them a lot as the cringe and then uh then i guess maybe a year or so ago we went back back out in the road, different band, you know, Fastest Land Animal. Uh, I was the same. Uh, the drummer, he he, he was, uh, we had two drummers with The Cringe. He was one of them, but he wasn't the normal drummer with The Cringe. So it was a different drummer. And then when we go on tour, even though there's three of us on record, we bring two other guys with us to cover all the parts because there's a lot going on. We got uh, two other guitarists, one, one guitarist, one keyboard slash guitarist. Um, and I don't play guitar at all with fastest land Island, which I did with the cringe. So it frees me up to be more of a front man, but then we got to, you know, bring, uh, these other guys with us to cover all the parts. So we were, you know, sort of the same, but different. Um, but we, when we went back out on the road and this was after there had been no gigs for years or for a year, year and a half. Um, so everyone involved was excited to be back out and working. Um, we would go to the gigs, and you know it was all the same. Obviously, same band. Tesla was the same guys. Uh, they, their crew were the same. Um, the other bands on the bill were the same, and even the, the people in the who were working at the venues we were playing a lot of the same venues were the same. So it was like an old uh, family homecoming. Like, hey, you guys are back! Oh my God, it's so good to see you! What's this fastest land animal? You're not the cringe anymore. What's going on? So it was really, it was, it was like going, you know, getting back together with your family. And then even the crowds, we would go on stage and I would see people in the crowd, like pointing at me going, I, th- I know that's, isn't that the cringe guy? That's, I know who you are. And that then they would like recognize it and like just love it. So um, yeah, I, it's, that's my happy place being, being out on tour and specifically touring with those guys. And they've become good friends of ours at this point. Uh, you know, Brian Wheat, he's uh he's a good buddy of mine i talk to him on the phone all the time and we both have homes in italy and we live about 20 minutes away from each other so he'll he'll come over for pasta and you know we'll go meet him in his town and his village and so it's all it's all good
2: the great thing about your guys sound too is that you could open for a band like tesla and then open for you know like an alternative rock band or a punk band is that Something you take pride in as well, something that you could kind of fit in all those different genres and still yeah. not stand out as not belonging, you know, that kind of thing.
1: I mean, I, I love that we can, you know, the idea is that you you want to reach as many people as you can yeah. and to to cross over, as it were, from like a, a hard rock crowd to a, like a punk or alternative crowd. And if you can do that, you're you're just nailing it out of the park. You know, like I think Nirvana was one of the first bands to do that, or Jane's Addiction was actually one of the first bands to do that, because they they appealed to the the hair metal, heavy metal crowd coming out of the '80s, but then they crossed right over into the alt, you know, the early '90s alt, and almost almost invented the whole alt thing. And in fact, you know, they created uh, Perry Farrell created Lollapalooza, which was the, really the first alt alt rock festival, I guess, as it were.
2: Right. Well, you mentioned going on stage, being your happy place. Like when you compare something like going on stage live to say, when you're on the Rachel Ray show, you're, you're in front of an audience. Do you have a different preparation since it's a totally different thing? Or is it kind of the same thing? Just preparing to go out in front of people and do your thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, for when I'm doing Rachel, my wife is Rachel Ray. When I do her show, I don't prepare. I just, it's like I get up there and I'm um, I'm hanging out in whether it's our actual kitchen or the studio kitchen. I'm hanging out with my wife, just having fun, making a drink or helping her cook. That's that's just like being at home and hanging out. I don't have to do vocal exercises. <laughs> before right. the Ray appearance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's just, you know, I'm just that's just me being a goofball and trying to just be myself and, and have fun with my wife. That's easy, oh,
2: yeah. Well, when it when it comes to that, where'd your like passion for mixology start? Is it something that you were you ever a bartender way back in the day, or is it just something you
1: was? Yeah? yeah, I mean, back you know, growing up when I was in my late teens and twenties, I worked in a a whole bunch of restaurants, and uh, and I ended up being a bartender. And I remember my first bartending gig. I you know I didn't know what I was doing. I, I could barely open a beer, much less mix anything. And the, uh, the guy running this, this event, or, uh, I think it was an event, not actually a, a restaurant, but it was in a, an event space. He goes, don't worry. It's going to be Jack and Cokes for the dudes and like, uh, uh, cranberry vodka for the, for the chicks. And you don't have to worry about mixing anything. You open some beers and that'll be everything you need to do. I'm like, okay, fine. So. The the doors open. There's a billion people at the bar. I'm completely overwhelmed. And the first person to ask for a drink asks for like a brain freeze or something. I don't even know what he was talking about. I had to he had to like <laughs> pour like a milky thing in like a, a vodka and make a brain and put a bloody like grenadine syrup on it. I, he talked me through it. So uh, yeah, that was my first my first experience to being a bartender, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, ever since then, I really just got a kick out of um, making drinks. You know, I'm not, I can't, I can cook, but I can't, obviously, I'm not as good. My wife is like one of the best cooks on planet Earth. But, um, but I can, I can, you know, I know my way around a bar at this point. I make some pretty great drinks. She loves drinking them. I, I keep her hydrated. She keeps me well fed, and it's like a match made in heaven.
2: Right. <laughs> I'm a big fan of whiskey. Do you have any like, whiskey drinks you could throw out that are easy to make like you know obviously besides jack and coke (laughs)
1: yeah i mean um i love doing a, a whiskey sour which um you can use any whiskey you want and do um you do uh whiskey of choice lemon juice simple syrup which is sugar and water until the sugar dissolves and then um shake it with ice and if you want to get really fancy put an egg white in there and that will froth it up and just make it give us this like creamy mouth feel and it, it'll be look it'll look really fancy put it like a nice fancy cherry on top and you got a beautiful drink
2: right on i'll have to try that cool besides these uh dates with tesla you've got coming up in may what else <clears throat> excuse me what else can we expect from fastest land animal in 2023
1: well, we're going to be on the road for most of 2023, okay. looking forward to it. And uh, and we got some more music videos coming out. In fact, I was just working on one this morning that we recorded in Italy, in my uh, home studio there for Next to You. Um, okay. And then, uh, yeah, I'll just, be, I'll just keep writing and, and we'll keep recording. But we're going to be mostly, we're spending the rest of the year starting April 18th in Detroit uh at motor city casino uh we will be out and about and touring our butts off with tesla
2: you planning to do headline headline days later in the year or like i mean anything's
1: possible okay. we don't know yet but um yeah. right now our, our calendar is pretty full with these dates but yeah we got we definitely got room for more and we'll we'll just keep they'll just keep piling on and you can you know we can keep you updated at uh fastestlandanimal.band and uh and you know all of our you know all of our music's out there on all the all the streaming sites and all of that we have right. vinyl we have vinyl coming out i believe in a few weeks so okay. this album will be available on vinyl we got merch we have t-shirts and all that fun stuff but vinyl's really important to me i every album i've ever recorded i've released on vinyl and this this one is no different um we We released it, uh, released the album East Coast, West Coast in between digitally uh, before the vinyl, just because there's like some supply chain issues going on. Um, So it was, it was, it's really hard to press vinyl these days, but we're doing it happening. We just got the test pressings in last week. And uh, so that'll be the next thing available for people to buy and listen to.
2: Right on. Are you, uh, do you collect vinyl yourself? I mean, of other bands? Oh, Oh
1: yeah. My God, I'm. I love vinyl. It's like, I think it's the best way to, I mean, consume music any way you can, obviously. And I love that I have my entire record, like an endless amount of records in my phone. I can listen to anytime, anywhere I am, but there's no no substitute for having a record and looking at the the artwork and the, the liner notes and putting it on the turntable. And it's like, almost like watching a movie or a TV show. You really get engaged and it yeah. just, i mean to me it sounds better
2: is that one of those things you have you done that your entire life or did you get away from it for a while and come back to it in recent years or
1: no i always i always listen to vinyl okay when i was a kid i i used to listen to my dad's records and then i started collecting my own um and then at some point they say hey you want my dad said you want to take my records because i'm going to throw them out i said yes i'll take them and i've slept these these records around with me wherever i am and you know at this point i've got a couple thousand records um and one two i guess about four turntables depending upon where i am but i just love it man there's nothing like listening to vinyl
2: yeah yeah i agree same thing kind of happened to me with my mom i've got like 30 some elvis records now thanks to her
1: (laughs) Do you have the original one with the that looks like the cla like the clash kind of ripped off the cover where it says Elvis Presley? Yeah. Oh, that's an, that's Yeah.
2: It's not I mean it's not in mint conditions because she like drew hearts on it and stuff, but
1: <laughs> Hey, whatever got you it. got, it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Amazing.
2: Yeah. Right on, man. Well, I'm loving the new album. I specifically thank love you, the right. song My Mistake. And
1: oh, awesome, thank you.
2: Love what you guys are doing. Looking forward to the future, and I appreciate you taking the time with me.
1: Yeah, man. I appreciate you uh, taking time with me, and uh, we'll see you out there on the road, buddy. There you go. John
2: Cusimano, a.k.a. Screaming Jack Novak, the lead vocalist of the band Fastest Land Animal. A huge thank you to Jody Best, once again of Best Bet Promotions, for her continued support of this podcast throughout the years. Absolute love Absolutely love Jody, and I absolutely appreciate the fact that John took some time out there to talk to me about the brand new album from Fastest Lane Animal and quite a few other topics. Good times there. Like I said earlier, check out the new album. East Coast, West Coast, In Between. It's out now. You can find it everywhere you can stream. You can also buy it everywhere you can buy music, so be sure and do that. band is the website. Get on there. Follow them on other socials as well. Check out The Cringe as well if that's a band that you are not familiar with. Like I said six albums out there from the early 2000s up to just a few years ago. You know, it's it's a little more rock-centric than Fastest Land Animal is, which Fastest Land Animal, like I said, kind of sits in that somewhere between pop and punk and new wave and rock. Great mix of styles there, and they do it quite well, so check out this album, check out this band if you have not. All right, if this is your first time listening, it's greatly appreciated. There are 370 episodes prior to this one that you could check out. There's been tons of great artists throughout the years on this podcast. Like I mentioned, Tesla. Frank Cannon's been on here four times. Brian Wheat has been on here once. If you like 80s rock, there's been a ton of those guys on here. Mark Slaughter has been on here. Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister. Mark Kendall of Great White has been on a couple times. A couple of the guys from Kicks have been on here. Tracy Guns and Phil Lewis of L.A. Guns. <clears throat> Some of the guys from Junkyard have been on here a couple times. We've had on members of Warrant, Firehouse, Trickster. Dizzy Reed of Guns N' Roses, who we talked about there with Eric Fraser. Vivian Campbell of Def Leppard and Dio has been on here. Gene Simmons of KISS. Bruce Kulick, formerly of Kiss. Yeah, you know, if you like heavy stuff, Alex Skolnick of Testament has been on here. David Elfson, formerly and the original bass player of Megadeth, has been on here a couple times, as has Chris Broderick and James Lomenzo, the current bass player from Megadeth. We've also had on Shooter Jennings, Vanilla Ice. We spanned the gamut here. So just dig back through there. And check out all these episodes. I'm sure that you will find someone in there that you like. King's X. Ty Tabor was on here earlier last year, and it was great. As was Jeff Tate, the original vocalist at Queensryche. John Waite and Michael Monroe of Hanoi Rocks. How cool is that? But I could keep rambling. Glenn Hughes, one of the all-time greats. But I'll stop right now. So check all that out. TheThunderUnderground.com is the website you can listen there. You can find all the socials there. You can also listen pretty much anywhere podcast or heard, wherever you're listening right now. If you haven't, like, follow, subscribe, or whatever, so you get alerted for future episodes. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, all that great stuff. Like I said, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Follow, like, all that great stuff, so then you, when you see a post from Thunder Underground, all you got to do is like it, throw in a quick comment, or share it, and that's an easy, free way to help out this podcast. If you ever see me out and about, or, you know, hit me up on the socials, or on the website there, or the email, thethunderunderground.com, no, excuse me, at gmail.com we've got... Merch, t-shirts, koozies, shot glasses, guitar picks, magnets, stickers. Probably something else I'm forgetting, but, you know, all that great stuff. All right. Once again, a massive thank you to our sponsors, DEB Concerts, Medfarm, Sunset Tattoo. And, of course, a big thank you to Best Buy Promotions, John Cusimano, and Eric Frazier. And until next time.
1: Thunder Underground, y'all.